0: This
1: is The Guardian.
0: I'm Laura Murphy Oates and this is the full story. This weekend, Australia chose change. Australians have chosen. Australians have chosen and they have chosen change. Australians have chosen and they have chosen hope. The Australian people have voted for change. Anthony Albanese will be the next Prime Minister of Australia after almost a decade in opposition. And I want to say thank you for placing your faith in me. Reflecting on the results, Scott Morrison said he accepted the burden of responsibility of the loss, but also pointed to the time of great upheaval over the past few years.
1: I think all Australians have felt that deeply. And we've seen in our own politics a great deal of disruption as the way people have voted today with major parties having one of the lowest primary votes that we've ever seen. That says a lot, I think, about the upheaval that is taking place in our nation. And I think it is important for our nation to heal and to move forward.
0: The major parties recorded their lowest primary vote in the modern era, while the Teal Independents and the Greens gained ground. Our climate has changed.
1: Our government wasn't listening to us. So we've changed the government.
0: Today, what this election means for the future of the major parties. It's Monday, the 23rd of May. I think I'm just going to start with how you're feeling, Sarah. How late were you up last night?
1: Tired. Yes, very tired. It was a late night for everyone here, so I think we mostly staggered out of the office after 2 Well, myself, about 2am.
0: Sarah Martin is Chief Political Correspondent at Guardian Australia.
1: Bear with me. If I, if I don't make any sense at all, that's why. So Murph described
0: the election result as a tectonic plate shift. It's We've seen Australian politics change overnight. I'm wondering if we can dig into that. I mean, what were the really big shifts that we saw in the election?
1: Obviously, it's a historic win for the Labor Party. I mean, that's something that can't be overstated. Like, Labor has only won government from opposition. This is the fourth time they've won government from opposition since World War II. So it's, a, it's an incredible achievement. Other really obvious things that are, are quite you know, startling, I guess, is the fact that Labor is going to form a government with a record low primary vote in the low 30s. We have this extraordinary phenomenon of the Teal independence winning a bunch of seats, possibly as many as six seats, which will take the crossbench up to a, a record number of, of 16 MPs. Mm-hmm. Huge swings in WA, where we've got swings of sort of 11%, which is an absolute wipeout for the Liberal Party over in the West. And then, of course, you've kind of got your traditional Labor-Liberal contests where, C- have fallen from the Liberal Party to the Labor Party, you know, marginal seats like Chisholm and Higgins in Victoria, and Robertson in New South Wales, Boothby and possibly Sturt in South Australia. And then there's a bunch of seats that at this stage are still too close to call, but it's looking like we could be in a situation where the Liberal Party don't hold any seats in the inner metropolitan areas of Melbourne, Perth or Adelaide, which is extraordinary.
0: So, Labor's primary vote was very low. We've seen the same for the LNP as well. How does this low primary vote compare to past elections?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, this has obviously been um, a a trend and we've seen it over the past consecutive elections that the votes of the two major parties have been going down. At this election, the uh, first preference vote for the Liberal and National Coalition is sitting at about 35 Whereas for the Labor Party, it's sitting about 32, really incredibly low figures. For comparison, Labor's uh, primary vote at the last time it won government from opposition in 2007 under Kevin Rudd, its primary vote was 44%. Mm. So an incredible difference. Now, obviously, some of that is the result of Labor voters in some of those inner city seats putting their vote behind an element of a strategy in how labor party people are voting but even so i mean the, the the conventional wisdom used to be that neither side could form government unless their primary vote was at 40% and that that is now dead that is no longer Out the window. A, that is no longer a truism of australian politics so um yeah quite fascinating
0: so i want to talk about what this result means for the future of both of the major parties and let's start with the liberal party how important were some of the seats that they lost in this election. Some of them were blue ribbon seats. What does it mean that they're gone
1: now? Mm. Well, I mean, this is the big question for the Liberal Party now. What does this mean for its future? And we're talking about seats that are previously blue ribbon Liberal seats in affluent parts of our major cities, where obviously the issue of climate change has been a vote changer and the government's progress on, on climate policy has been insufficient to keep those voters on board. And of course, we've had in this past term of Parliament as well, huge problems with the Liberal Party's. Views on women. So I think there's, we don't have the data yet, but obviously there's a view that professional educated women were a huge part of this swing away from the Liberal Party. What that means now for the party is really a key question and one that I think shell shocked Liberals are going to be thinking very closely about. And there's already, we're seeing a bit of a schism in how. MPs who are still in the party uh, responding to this. And there's those on the right who say, well, you know, we tried appeasing the left and that didn't work and we've lost all the seats in the city, so we're better off abandoning them altogether mm. and trying to move further to the right and pick up some of those people who at this election supported United Australia Party and One Nation. And then there's obviously those, the moderate wing and also some of those in the centre who say, well, clearly we need to get back to the centre. This is not sustainable for the Liberal Party to be Australia's second major political party and not have any votes in the inner cities.
0: So there's a bit of a battle for the heart and the future of the Liberal Party. Should we go further to the centre or further to the right? How could that play out? I mean, will it take years to resolve where that direction will be or days?
1: Oh, look, I think this is a long term problem for the Liberal Party. Um, and there's going to be a lot of soul searching. And obviously, the first sort of flashpoint for this is going to be in their decision about who becomes the party's next leader and whether Peter Dutton is the, I mean, obviously, he's seen as the likely successor at this stage. Mm. And of course, given so many moderates have lost their seats, then the nature, the makeup of the coalition party room has changed as well. So, there's many few moderate MPs in that party room. And obviously the the leader is decided by a vote of the party room. So at this stage, it seems extremely unlikely that there would even be a moderate contender. Obviously, if Josh Frydenberg was still in the parliament, it would have been a contest between him and Peter Dutton. Frydenberg's not there. There's no other senior moderate in the House of Representatives who's seen as a likely leader, particularly in the short term. So whether or not another MP from the right of the party stands up and tries to, you know, puts himself forward as a more acceptable uh, leader for um, the Liberal Party and the moderates within the Liberal Party. So it remains to be seen. But I guess, you know, again, this is going to come down to that question about what is the future of the party? Is it that they go further to the right and try and pick up some of that disgruntled working class vote, which Labor is having some problems with, and and the results, as much as this is a win for the Labor Party, if you delve into the results in some of those outer suburbs, their primary vote has also gone down. So, you know, there is a really interesting conversation to be had about the future of the Liberal Party. And the first real sort of test of that is what happens with the leadership.
0: This is being seen as the climate change election. Do you think we could see the coalition change their stance towards that policy going forward?
1: (laughs) I mean, this question is is now being asked about how climate um, sort of plays into the Liberal Party's future and the coalition's future political prospects. So, Matt Canavan, obviously a very outspoken nationals critic of the net zero commitment, spoke to Daniel Hearst this morning and he, he said, you know, McDonald's can't sell health food and the LNP can't sell socialism. And, you know, the coalition tried a leftist agenda on climate and it hasn't worked. And so, therefore... They should go the other direction. You know, there are others I've spoken to this morning who say, well, this probably is the end of the climate wars and we can't keep fighting this. And this is a, this is a fairly strong repudiation of our you know, efforts to block progress mm. on climate policy. But again, this is going to be hard fought within the party. And it probably depends a bit on what happens. And how Labor implements its climate policies and what the consequence of that is, you know, which I guess is is sort of the, the unknown in this equation. If it all goes well and the transition goes well and Labor manages that well, then I think there will be absolutely no reason for the conservative side of politics to keep fighting this losing battle. But if there are problems, if there is instability or increases to energy prices. I think there'll be those in the coalition who will find it irresistible to not try and weaponise this again. How
0: hard will it be to win back some of these blue ribbon seats that the, the rules have lost at this election? Are they
1: gone forever? I think it's basically impossible. Because if they were in a situation where they had to pick a side and form government, like if we were in a minority parliament situation and you had some of those teal independents having to, if they decided to back in a Labor government, for example, their future would be more shaky. But... History shows us, for example, Zali Stegall in Warringah, uh, Rebecca Sharkey in Mayo. Generally, once these independents are in, they do very well and they become just fierce advocates for their communities. And I think that is something that is worrying members of the Liberal Party is those seats are probably gone for as long as those independents want to keep them. One other point that I really want to make is what what I think is fascinating in a lot of those inner city Liberal Blue ribbon seats. When vacancies have emerged, they have filled them with party hacks. Oftentimes it is people who've come up through the ranks of the young Liberals, they've done their time, they've worked for ministers, you know, they have taken those seats for granted. So I think there are some real lessons here at a sort of structural level about how, you know, the Liberal Party needs to improve its representation in the parliament.
0: Mm, do you think a different candidate in some of these Liberal seats might have yielded a different result, especially if that candidate was a woman, as all of the successful teal independents are?
1: I mean, one thing that strikes me is that, you know, people like Kate Cheney and Allegra Spender probably should be in the Liberal Party. You know, Allegra Spender comes from, bl- you know, blue a blood. family liberal family. Kate Cheney, you know, again, the Cheney name is, has got a very strong association with the Liberal Party going back decades. So I guess one of the questions I have is where and when did the Liberal Party fail to to speak to people like this? When, at what point did they lose these, you know, these women who don't find resonance with the Labor Party? They are smaller liberals, they are environmentally conscious they are professional they are well educated you know it's an extraordinary movement now you know the liberal party has somewhere along the way lost those people and is not has not been speaking to those people or listening to those people uh, you know we've seen the morrison government really it's like the women haven't existed they've been speaking to Tradies, they've been speaking to blokes, they've been, like, narrowcasting to men. You know, women aren't stupid. They have clearly noticed that they have been left out of that conversation. You know, the fact that in the last parliament, 20% of the, of the coalition's lower house MPs were women. I mean, that's an appalling, abysmal result for one of Australia's major political parties. And it's like they thought that would just slide under the radar. But, you know, obviously it hasn't.
0: Next, what this result means for the direction of the Labor government. Sarah, that's a fallout for the LNP. Let's talk about Labor. What is the first priority of Anthony Albanese now that Labor has won?
1: Well, the first thing for Albanese is to go to Tokyo for the Quad which is the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, which is an extremely important strategic security dialogue between Australia, India, Japan and the United States. Obviously, President Joe Biden will be there. We have the first opportunity to meet with Prime Minister Modi and Prime Minister Kishida. Albanese is due to fly out on Monday afternoon with Penny Wong, who will be sworn in as Foreign Affairs Minister. That's an incredible first thing for Albanese to have in his first week as Prime Minister. So um, meeting with Australia's most important strategic partners Mm.
0: Right, so we know Penny Wong is going to be Foreign Affairs Minister. What else do we know about the Cabinet and when will we know the exact shape of it?
1: So the Labor caucus is expected to meet on the 30th of May to elect ministers as required under party rules. The swearing in of the full ministry should take place later that week. We know that obviously Jim Chalmers will have Treasury. We know that Richard Miles, the Deputy Leader, has his pick of portfolio. Um, he hasn't revealed what that will be as yet. We know that Labor is going to have to find a new Home Affairs minister with Christina Keneally out of the parliament, given she held that portfolio as a shadow minister. But there's obviously going to be quite a few changes. There'll be a new lineup and it'll be interesting to see how Albanese manages that. Of course, under Labor's rules, the ministry is done on a sort of representative basis, depending on um, the left and right caucus. So um, that will determine how many left wingers and right wingers get a position on the front bench. We're likely
0: to see the first Indigenous woman appointed as Indigenous Affairs Mm. Minister, Linda Burney. She was Mm. also the first Indigenous woman as an MP Mm. in Parliament. Are there any kind of historic appointments that might be a first?
1: Well, obviously, Linda Burney with Indigenous Affairs is a huge first. Also, having um, Penny Wong as a woman of Asian descent taking on foreign affairs is a first and a really important first. So, obviously, we'll wait to see the final lineup of Albanese's new ministry, but clearly, those two positions are really historic firsts for the Labor Party. Mm.
0: Other than flying to Tokyo, what else is on the immediate agenda for the new Labor government? Mm.
1: Well, there's obviously going to be a shake-up as always occurs with the change of government of the public service and one of Albanese's first things to do will be to replace the head of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet who is currently Phil Gaitjeans who's obviously very close to Scott Morrison. We are going to see Parliament back next month. <laughs> 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 really, can't they just... Excited I just, for that, I mean, are you? They <laughs> just have a slightly longer break. That'll be fine. Holiday. I mean, we know that um, Jim Charles, is going to deliver a ministerial statement on the um, budget and the economic outlook next month as well. Uh, Labor will be preparing for a new budget later in the year. Albanese has also said he wants to pretty quickly organise a summit with business and unions leader, which will inform a new white paper on employment And, um, of course, there's going to be all the um, nuts and bolts work that begins in the departments um, to prepare legislation to deliver on Labor's policies on things like climate change, energy, infrastructure, childcare, employment and, of course, constitutional recognition. Albanese has promised to introduce a federal ICAC by the end of the year. So there's obviously a lot of work to be done on that legislation. You know, that's going to be an interesting one to watch as well because obviously there's some internals within the Labor Party that are going to have to be ironed out once they start to get into the nitty-gritty of that piece of legislation. Mm. And then there's other areas of policy which Albanese has said he wants to prioritise, like the Powering Australia plan, um, establishing the National Reconstruction Fund and um, setting up Jobs and Skills Australia. So um, plenty on Albanese's to-do list.
0: Just looking at what's on his agenda, does it seem ambitious? Is he trying to do a lot in his first hundred days? All of these things are things that he wants to get going on in the first hundred
1: days, we mm. should clarify. I don't think it's sort of Rudd-esque level of ambition, which I'm sure people remember after the 2007 election, we had like summits in Canberra. and um, Love to summit. <laughs> it was, um, you know, it was, it was a pretty wild time. So I think there's plenty for Labor to get stuck into. You know, it's going to be a busy parliamentary year.
0: So, Sarah, at the time of recording, which is Sunday afternoon, it is unclear whether Labor will form a majority government or if they will have to form minority government with the support of the crossbench. But in either scenario, we're looking at a big crossbench full of climate-focused independents and Greens. What power could they exert on Labor and the direction of the next government?
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question because obviously Labor tone down their climate policy ahead of this election compared to 2019. If we have a crossbench with more Greens and climate-focused independents, but Labor has a majority government, then it's it's unlikely, I think, that Labor is going to change its policy immediately, at least, because there's not going to be any sort of immediate pressure on Labor to do so. Mm. And, you know, Labor still has has to keep an eye on some of those seats like the Hunter some of the seats that they're still hopeful of winning in the future in Queensland, seats in the Northern Territory, they need to make sure they sort of keep everyone happy. I think the, the squeeze for Labor probably comes more in the Senate. If we do get a progressive the leaning Senate and a, a Senate um, that has potentially um, the Greens and David Pocock holding the balance of power, then that becomes really interesting if for Labour to get its policies through the Senate, um, does it need to toughen up its climate measures to win support? That's going to be the real test, I think.
0: Mm. They've kind of backed themselves in a corner on some of the key policies. They ruled out raising job seeker or changing their climate targets. Can they move here? Do they have much room to move on those key policies?
1: Yeah, and maybe they will look at this result and think, okay, well, this is a huge vindication of people wanting more action on climate change. We can afford to be more ambitious in the medium term and maybe they are prepared to take that risk, particularly if they end up with a slightly stronger majority and if the Liberals are in complete disarray, then they may feel that they can take bolder action in that space. There are a number of things where Labor has sort of indicated, you know, they've sort of been waiting to get into government before they look at things, like JobSeeker. They've, you know, obviously indicated they're prepared to sit down with the states to talk about hospital funding, particularly depending on the final result and how much authority Albanese can can take from that. Then you can expect certainly um, internally he will face calls to do a lot more. That might be what we're talking about in a year's time is how those internals have been managed. The tensions in the Labor Party between the left and the right have not disappeared just because Albanese has pulled off this victory. So I think that's going to be really quite fascinating. And obviously, Albanese comes from the socialist left faction, and obviously, Jim Chalmers, who holds the treasury portfolio, is from the right. So it's going to be really interesting. Like If there's a huge amount of pressure in Albanese to do more on wages, to do more on job seeker, to do more on climate, to do more on, you know, a bunch of policy areas, health funding and so on, in an economy where we've got huge inflationary pressures. We're going to see interest rates go up over the next year. It's going to be a really difficult time to govern, I think. So it's going to be quite interesting to see how Albanese manages all of that. As you mentioned, the primary vote of
0: the major parties has been falling for quite a while. Could it fall even further or are we going to continue to see this trend downwards and what impact does that have on Australian politics? What could that look like in the
1: future? I I don't know the answer to that. You sort of wonder, you know, how low can they go? Um, But, uh, and you know, maybe, I mean, maybe Albanese can win back some of that, maybe. He he said yesterday in in his victory speech, I hope, you know, for those who didn't vote for me, I hope to get your vote next time.
0: And I can promise all Australians this, no matter how you voted today, the government I lead will respect every one of you yes. every day. Yes. And I'll seek to get your vote next time.
1: Maybe he will be able to bring some more people back to the Labor fold. In terms of what it means for Australian politics, I mean, these are <laughs> these, are, these are the big questions. And, and you know, I, I guess given we have seen this sort of weird realignment with this election result and we are seeing this real division in the regions and the cities and an education divide, sort of how that shakes out in terms of the future direction for each party is is really interesting. And, you know, no doubt both sides will be sort of going over the entrails of this election result to work out, you know, what lessons there are for them. It's sort of the continuation of a, of a long-term trend that we're seeing. And, you know, maybe in 50 years' time we'll look back at, at this as sort of a pivotal moment in Australian political history in terms of the fragmentation and realignment of Australian politics.
0: Okay, Sarah, thank you so much. Thanks, Laura. I hope you get some sleep. Nap time. That was Sarah Martin, Chief Political Correspondent at Guardian Australia. With postal votes still rolling in and seats still to be called, you can find the latest on the election at theguardian.com plus coverage of everything discussed in this episode. I do recommend checking out Sarah's wrap of the result, in particular titled Australian Election 2022, Anthony Albanese humbled to be next PM as voters Abandon coalition. Also, Catherine Murphy's analysis about what this result means For the Liberals is well worth a read. We've put some links to those pieces and more on the full story page. This episode was produced by Ellen Lee Beater and Miles Herbert. Sound design and mixing by Daniel Simo. The executive producers of Full Story are Miles Matignoni, Gabrielle Jackson and me, Laura murphy I just want to say a big thanks to Jane Lee, who's been hosting our daily election update campaign catch-up for the past six weeks and did a really incredible job. If you liked this episode or any of our campaign coverage, you can also say thanks by leaving us a rating or a review. OK, catch you tomorrow.